Good morning. Today's scripture, as Matthew said, is Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me this young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, 
I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This concludes the reading of God's word. Lord, we ask for your help and your favor right now. We need your help to wrestle with hard things. I need your help to speak of hard things. And we approach this word and this sermon now with an abiding confidence that you are not a God who merely speaks of easy things. Because we live in a world full of very hard and painful things. And so to that end, on this day, we thank you for this passage because it reminds us you are not silent. Help us in your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, as we approach this passage, which is admittedly quite difficult, I want to remind you that it is exceedingly dangerous to treat Scripture like a cookbook. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever bought a book or received a book of recipes, what are you expected to do? You're expected to flip through it, to to look at the pictures, choose the dishes that look good to you, and ignore the rest, right? I, I have yet to meet a cook, this is kind of the point of this, that feels guilty because they only worked with some of the recipes in the book. Right? Because the point of the cookbook isn't that you, if you get it, you don't have to make everything in it. You take what you like, you discard what you don't. So I'll say it again. It is very dangerous to treat Scripture like a cookbook. Very dangerous. Because the moment that we shy away from reading Thinking about hard, difficult, painful, and even graphic portions of God's Word is the moment we stop treating it as God's Word. Please hear that. So some passages are more helpful, more readily helpful than others in in understanding who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him, right? Right? But at the same time, God knows, God knows the sentences and words and paragraphs and chapters that we need better than we do. He knows. Why? 2 Timothy 3.16. What's it say? What's Paul say? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. And so, because of that, promise from God that all Scripture is breathed out by Him and is profitable, I ask this question, what about Genesis 34 is profitable? And my answer to that question is simply this. Genesis 34 helps us to understand the evil around us, the evil within us, and how wisdom responds to both of those things. The evil around us, the evil within us, and how wisdom responds to both of those things. That's why I'm eager to preach this sermon, albeit with a measure of great fear and trembling. (laughs) This passage traffics in evil. But it doesn't do that to repulse or to titillate. It traffics in evil in order to reprove, to correct, and train in righteousness the people of God like us who still live in the midst of an evil world and who still battle sin in an evil heart. And ultimately, this chapter reveals the depth of our need for a Savior church who can deliver mercy and justice to the wounded and the wayward. 
And there are some passages in Scripture that highlight our, our need for a Savior. There are some passages in Scripture that, that highlight God's provision of a Savior in Jesus. There are other passages that bring together our need and God's provision. I'll let you know that the second two kinds are a lot easier to preach than the first kind. But this is of the first kind. And this is good, and it is necessary. Why? Because faith lives at the intersection of our need and God's provision. It lives at that corner. It's parked there. It only thrives there. And that means that if we don't understand the tortuous depth of our need, then we're never going to appreciate or grasp the glorious height of God's provision. And for that reason, this chapter is a sweet, sweet, painful, good gift. It shows us just how much we need a Savior. That's God. Who can bring justice and mercy to the wounded and to the wayward. So, why do we need that kind of Savior? Two reasons. Here we go. Reason number one, because the people of God will experience grievous evil. People of God will experience, they are not immune to, grievous evil. So to give you a little bit of background here, in Genesis 32 and 33, a wealthy sojourner named Jacob experiences God's deliverance in his life in, in a radical, life-altering kind of way. His older brother Esau, who he thought would, would kill him, chooses instead to what? To forgive and embrace him. And it's a loud statement to Jacob and to us that salvation comes not to those who think they are strong, but to those who know they are weak and wholly rely on the mercy of God. That's the background. Don't take matters into your own hands. Trust the Lord. That's the lesson of Genesis 33. And so the big question as we approach Genesis 34 is this. Will Jacob and his family continue to wholly rely on the God who saves when evil no longer keeps its distance or stays away? What will they do when evil draws close, really close, and hurts them in a deeply painful and personal way? What are they going to do? To add to the difficulty of this account, Jacob wasn't supposed to stop in Shechem. 20 years earlier, when he left the land of his fathers for Haran to find a wife, he vowed that he would return to Bethel, to the land of his fathers, to worship the Lord after God provided for him. And eventually the Lord told him when he was still in Haran with his father-in-law Laban, Jacob, it's time to go back to Bethel. Go home. Go to Bethel. And the city of Shechem, if you look at Genesis 33 verse 18, was only on the way back to Bethel the land of his fathers. In fact, it was only a day's journey away from Bethel. That's all. But instead of fully obeying the Lord, Jacob stopped at Shechem, Genesis thirty-three nineteen, and what? Bought for a hundred pieces of money a piece of land from Hamor, Shechem's father. So in short, the very place that he built an altar and called it what? El Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel. This is like his moment, spiritual triumph, trust in God, is the very place that is also marked by spiritual disobedience. Ever experienced that? All mixed together? It was the same mistake Abraham's nephew Lot made. Decades earlier, when he, he moved as far as Sodom and Gomorrah. And like those cities, Shechem was a pagan city, a godless city, a Canaanite city, ruled by a Hivite named Hamor and his son Shechem. If you know nothing but that, you should hear the ominous 
music in the background. Some, something's not right. And the expectation of trouble only increases in Genesis 34, verse 1, when one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, goes out to see, quote, the women of the land. That's not an idle phrase. They were the women Abraham told his servant in Genesis 24 to not go to, to choose a son for his, a wife for his son Isaac. They were the women that Esau married who made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah in, in Genesis 26. And the women Isaac warned Jacob to not ever marry in Genesis 28. Why? Why not? What, what's the concern with the women of the land? What's well, because they didn't fear the Lord? They were pagan idolaters, and, and Abraham knew that they would lead his son and his descendants away from following the Lord. However, please hear this, neither Jacob's explicit disobedience or Dinah's implicit lack of wisdom mitigate or excuse the horror of what happens next. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Friends, people in positions of power, using their power to violate the object of their sexual lust is not a new evil. It's a very old evil. And our awareness of the extent of sexual abuse has increased in recent years, has it not? For which we say, thanks be to God. But sexual violence is not new. And I've been pastoring this church long enough to know that there are quite a few men and women in this room who have been victims of sexual abuse. And an even larger number of men and women in this room have a family member or a friend who has been the victim of sexual abuse. And, and if present statistics are any indicator, if you live long enough, all of us are going to be in one of those two categories. All of us. And I say that because I'm very aware that in speaking of what happened to Dinah, we are not just talking about history. This is personal. This is painful. This is very, very real. And that is why I am so grateful for something in the first four verses of this chapter. Okay? I am grateful that Scripture does not ignore or cover up the reality of sexual sin doesn't do that. Men and women may hide sexual abuse. God does not. He speaks honestly and directly about the reality of sexual sin. And that, that is a gift, friends. That's a gift, especially if you've been the victim of sexual abuse and doubt whether anyone will believe your story, whether any of that actually happened, or if it did happen, maybe it's all my fault. If you've ever felt those things, it is good that God doesn't go silent about sexual abuse. He speaks to it. And know, friend, that the attitude of Jacob's sons in verse 7 reflects the attitude of God himself. By the way, this is also how Jacob should have responded. Verse 7, and the men were indignant and very angry. Because he, Shechem, had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. Listen, for such a thing must not be done. It's wrong. What Shechem did to Dinah is wicked. And what's happened to you, if you are a victim of sexual abuse, is not one bit less wicked. You need to hear God saying that to you. 
And please note, complicating factors aside, okay, the evil here is not the absence of consent. Why do I say that? Because we live in a culture that increasingly defines morality by consent. Right? If there's consent, whatever's consented to is okay. Simply because there's consent. Not true. The evil here is that Shechem took an exceedingly good thing. God's gift is sexual intimacy. A gift designed for only one man and one woman to enjoy in the lifelong covenant of marriage. And Shechem perverted that to satisfy his sexual lust. That's why this is wicked. Not just because it lacked consent. And that needs to be said because sexual intimacy is, as created and designed by God is one of the most beautiful mirrors that God has given us for, for glimpsing the depth of relationship and unity and passionate love between Christ and the church. So sex isn't just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a holy thing. And the simple fact that sex is so good, it's designed and created by God, is what makes sexual abuse so exceedingly wicked. Like every other sin, it's a violation of the holy law of our Creator. But it's not just like every other sin. It's uniquely devastating. Because it mars something supremely glorious. The passionate love that Jesus has for his bride corrupts that. It scars that. And praise God, if you look at verse 3, Jesus' love for us is not like Shechem's love for Dinah. So Shechem's love wasn't faithful. It wasn't steadfast like the Lord's. It was selfish and unreliable and, and corrupted by wickedness, right? So he violated Dinah one hour, and then he what? Loved and spoke tenderly to her the next. So he's both assaulting God's image and reflecting God's image. You have these echoes of good alongside expressions of great evil. Now, now loving and speaking tenderly to Dinah doesn't mitigate or lessen the horror of humiliating her, okay? It doesn't justify him raping her. It does show, please hear this, that God understands how the relationship between an abuser and their victim, especially in a domestic situation, can feel like an emotional carnival of mirrors, a chaotic sea of conflicting thoughts and feelings where it is so hard to tell what's real and what's not. And sometimes the very presence of apparent good makes unquestionable evil all the more painful and paralyzing. It's a visceral picture of the insanity of sin. But even that insanity, friend, isn't hidden from the Lord, right? He knows. It's why passages like this are in the Bible, including verse 3. And sometimes for reasons that we do not fully understand in the least, God allows his very own children to endure horrific suffering. think about it. Dinah wasn't just anyone's daughter, right? She was Jacob's daughter. She was part of the chosen people of God. Her, her father was the one that God chose to mediate God's covenant blessings to the next generation. And so if Dinah's story is your story on some level, friend, or if one day, God forbid, it becomes part of your story, allow her story to remind you that being a victim of sexual sin does not automatically exclude you from being in the people of God. Even the people of God experience grievous evil. We shouldn't be surprised, nor should we conclude that God has abandoned us or think that, that this must mean I'm no longer the particular object of his special favor. Jacob was. Dinah was. And, and yet they still experienced grievous evil. And if and when that happens, friend, we should be angry. Anger 
is not an intrinsically bad thing. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself, okay? It's an exceedingly good thing when it reflects what? The holy hatred of God who is absolutely against evil and evildoers. When it reflects that, it's a good thing. Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a righteous judge. He is not neutral toward evil and evildoers. He's a righteous judge and a God who therefore feels indignation every day. Dinah's defilement did not escape his notice. In fact, he recorded it in the Bible so that when the same kind of evil draws near to us today, we would know that even when no one else seems to care or no one else seems to believe you, God knows. And God understands. And God is not silent. And God is not unaware. Why do we need a Savior? who can deliver justice and mercy to the wounded and the wayward first because the people of God will experience grievous evil. Answer number two. Why do we need a Savior? Because human vengeance doesn't solve the problem. It reveals the problem. Think about that. Notice that neither Hamor nor Shechem ever actually apologize, let alone acknowledge the evil of what Shechem had done, but they do make an offer, as wicked men are inclined to do. Hamor asked Jacob to give Dinah to Shechem as his wife, and in verse 8, he encourages Jacob's family to make marriage alliances and, quote, dwell with us in verses 9 and 10. And Shechem tries to sweeten the deal in verses 11 and 12 by offering to pay whatever bride price Jacob's family demands. And note the fact that Jacob's sons are the ones who answer Hamor and Shechem in verse 13 suggests that Jacob has taken an altogether passive role in the proceedings. He's abdicating his responsibility as the spiritual leader of their family. It's not the first time. And the reply of his sons, if you look at verse 14, has the appearance of faithfulness to Yahweh. Verse 14, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. What's up with that? Well, circumcision was the, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? It was a a physical mark of spiritual consecration to the Lord and his purposes. It set Abraham and his descendants apart as the covenant people of God. And so on the surface, it sounds like the sons of Jacob are insisting, if you want to marry our sister Dinah, you have to become a worshiper of Yahweh. Sounds like that. But in reality, The entire counteroffer has nothing to do with securing faithfulness to Yahweh from a prospective suitor. Nothing to do with that. There's no, notice, explanation or connection to the covenant. There's no insistence on their part that these men follow the Lord, that they present circumcision and the process of becoming one people as if it's nothing more than an outward religious ritual. That's not true. It was sacrilegious. It was sacrilegious because they misrepresented God's character and purposes in their counteroffer. But Hamor and Shechem gladly agree, somewhat to my shock, and they convince their countrymen to join them by, by playing to their financial avarice. Verse 23, look there. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Verse 24, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And the men of Shechem soon learn what the reader has suspected since verse 13. The whole circumcision thing was nothing more than a deceptive ruse 
designed to immobilize the men of Shechem. Look at verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males, Hamor and Shechem included. And after rescuing Dinah, look at verse 27. All of Jacob's sons, notice none are excluded, all of them came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, goods, verse 29, all their little ones and their wives. All that was in the houses. They captured, plundered, ravished. So on the one hand, it feels like justice was served, right? The oppressor was oppressed. Shechem's evil came came back on his own head. But on the other hand, friend, we immediately realize something here has gone terribly wrong. Dinah was an innocent victim. Her family was an innocent victim. Yet yet what does her family do in response? They, They functionally, if not literally, rape an entire city in retaliation. What Shechem did was evil. But Jacob's sons only added to the problem, right? The oppressed became the oppressor. The abused became an abuser. The the family that God had set apart to be his divinely chosen means of blessing to the world cruelly murdered and violated their neighbors. What's that scream, church? Everyone needs the mercy of God. They did just as much as Shechem. Hear that. The Bible doesn't hesitate to speak honestly about the problem of evil, okay? Including wicked men who prey on the helpless. Psalm 10, verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. That, that, that is exactly what Shechem did to Dinah. The Bible doesn't hesitate to speak of that. At the same time, please hear this, Scripture repeatedly identifies us as part of the problem. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so Jacob's sons, they prove the point, right? And and so do we, friends, whenever we seek to avenge the evil done to us by repaying evil with evil. We prove the truth of Psalm 14. And, And I make this point because we love to categorize people, don't we? What do we do? You're either good or you're bad. You're a hero or a villain. You're a victim or a victimizer. You're the tribe of the oppressed or the tribe of the oppressor. And it happens all the time in the news and on social media. Reality, we are told, is binary. Pick your tribe. Well, reality is a little more complicated. All of us haven't been sexually abused but all of us have been oppressed by evil, right? We've all been sinned against in various ways. And all of us have also oppressed others, right? We've sinned against them in all kinds of ways. And that is precisely what makes this whole story so uncomfortable to read. Why? Because it hits close to home. And it forces us to acknowledge as the people of God that evil isn't just something that comes at us. It's also something that comes out of us. And sometimes, church, we see the evil within us most clearly 
in the way we respond to evil committed against us. I love how David Pallison summarizes this point. As with most human struggles, there is often an intricate dance between what arises from inside of us and what assaults or beguiles us from the outside. A girl or boy who was abused is an innocent victim of someone else's treacherous and malicious sexuality. But if that same child later becomes a promiscuous adult, he or she is culpable for that behavior. Life is complicated. We are enmeshed in unsettling realities. So, Christ's grace sets out to do something more multifaceted than simply charging the unambiguously guilty and rescuing the unambiguously innocent. He enters into the totality of human experience. He touches all our sins and our afflictions. Jesus' mercies make all things new. He redeems both the wayward and the wounded. Human vengeance doesn't solve the problem. It reveals the problem. We need a Savior. Point number three, only Jesus can deliver us from evil. Amen? Only Jesus can deliver us from evil. We're going to end with this. Back in Genesis 12, verse 3, the Lord makes a precious promise to Abraham and all his descendants. He says what? Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Slang translation. Got your back. <laughs> Got your back. The Lord proved his faithfulness to do exactly that, to bring justice to Jacob's enemies in the way he delivered Jacob from his cheating father-in-law, Laban. Right? So, so despite nearly all of Laban's schemes to the contrary, practically all of Laban's flocks and herds justly became Jacob's. God made sure that happened. And especially on the heels of his deliverance from the hand of Esau in Genesis 33, Jacob and his family had every reason to trust and cry out to the Lord to work justice and deliverance instead of taking matters into their own hands. They had every reason to do that. But they chose instead to try to do God's job for him, right? They tried to do God's job for him. You ever done God's job for him? Or tried? Failed? They functionally declared, Lord, we don't trust you to do your job yourself. We would like to vote you out of office and nominate ourselves for your office. And that's part of what made the revenge against the Hivites so wicked. Please hear that. The wickedness wasn't just that it was disproportionate. As if they had only ravished one woman in the city, it would have been just. No, the wickedness in it was that their human revenge was, at its core, arrogant. We don't trust you to do your job, God. So we're going to do it for you. And notice, even the way Jacob rebukes Simeon and Levi, look at verse 30. It reflects an absence of trust in the Lord as their protector and defender. So what Jacob should have done, he should have condemned them for massacring the city. He should have rebuked them for denigrating the right of circumcision. He should have warned them of the danger of intermarriage and called them out for breaking their word to Hamor and Shechem. But he doesn't do that. He simply says, You've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. And if they all get together, we're going to be destroyed. <laughs> I mean, what about Dinah? <laughs> it's a woefully utilitarian ethic. Jacob doesn't deliver his family from evil. He practices evil by disobeying God's command abdicating his leadership role, giving into fear. And his sons are no better, right? They, they make, what, the correct moral judgment. Such a thing ought not to be done. They're rightly angry, but then they quickly succumb to rage. 
And they ravage an entire city of women and children. And so Derek Kinder's indictment of the entire family rings true. Jacob and his sons, the appeasers and the avengers, swayed respectively by fear and fury, were perhaps equidistant from true justice. And neither of their responses are satisfactory, which is where the story ends. Look at verse 31. But his son said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? End of story. Clearly, the answer is no. 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 But if it's not Jacob or his sons, who is able to work true justice? Who's able to right the wrong committed against Dinah without committing sin of their own? Who's able to practice a kind of justice that is completely good and completely holy? Friends, the question at the end of Genesis 34, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? What about this lingering, unresolved injustice that we only added to? That question is only answered in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How? Why did Jesus die? He died, Isaiah 53, because God Almighty crushed him. God killed Christ. But why? He killed him because Jesus took on himself the guilt of the sin of the world. Murder, rape, adultery, racism, evil, malice, hatred. Jesus didn't die just as some kind of moral example for general sacrificial living. Okay? He died in the stead of sinners. And when he died, the wrath of God against the wickedness of men, that the stored up penalty for sin, past, present, and future, all of that came crashing down on Jesus in a decisive act of holy, righteous judgment. And three days later, The same Jesus, what, rose from the grave. The infinite worth of his life, exceeding the immeasurable depth of sin. And he now reigns at the right hand of the Father, does he not? He reigns, waiting until the day when when all his enemies are going to be made a what? A footstool for his feet. He's not languishing under evil in the grave. He is risen and ascended and reigning right now. And that day of judgment, according to 2 Peter 2, will be an exceedingly terrifying day for the wicked. By the way, that's not all the people that you think are more sinful than you. That's all who refuse to trust Jesus and follow Jesus as the only one who can make sinners right with God. And if you're in that category, you should be terrified. Because on that day, you will experience the eternal weight of divine justice against every sin, every act of abuse, every act of oppression, that you have ever committed. Not on Christ, on you. So, pastor, why is that good news? Why is that good news in Genesis 34 and in the midst of all the evil around us today? It is good news, church, because it assures us, the judgment of God assures us that evil will not prevail right? The justice of God will prevail. So either God punishes the oppressor for their sin or God himself absorbs the punishment for their sin. Regardless, every evil will be punished. No evil will go unnoticed or unaddressed. 
Justice will be served. Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, therefore, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He's got it. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's our hope, right? That's our confidence. Justice will prevail, and our our suffering and our resurrected Savior guarantees that. So let's tile these threads together. What what do you do when you're wounded? When you're the victim of sexual sin? There's only one thing, friend, that will deliver you from the cycle of bitterness and revenge. Only one thing that will keep the oppressed from becoming an oppressor. You know what you need to do? You need to cast yourself on the mercy and justice of God. Cast yourself on the mercy and justice of God. Psalm 10, verse 17. Oh Lord, here's what that sounds like, okay? If you don't, how do I do that? You do it like this. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And then we pray verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, God. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Translation, change their heart or take them out. Pray that when you're wounded. What do we do if we're wayward? When we've committed sexual abuse or responded to the evil committed against us with with sin of our own, what do you do? You cast yourself on the mercy and justice of God. Same thing. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, fearful saint, your heavenly father will not punish his son for your sin and then turn around and punish you too. What did Charles Spurgeon love to say? Payment he will not twice demand. First at the bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. You won't. If you're wayward, run to Jesus. Don't do what Shechem did. His offer of a bride price was this ridiculous, futile attempt at self-atonement through self-sacrifice. Don't do that. Only Jesus can cleanse you from the guilt of the sin you've committed and free you to love those you once violated and hated. And if you're wounded, you too need to run to Jesus. Don't do what Jacob's sons did. Their their furious revenge was a futile attempt at self-deliverance through vigilante justice. Leave it to the wrath of God. Only Jesus can cleanse you from the shame of the sin committed against you and free you to forgive and love your enemies. Only Jesus can deliver us from evil. Friends, in response to many forms of oppression, and certainly in every case of sexual abuse, one of the most important ways we say help to God and love our enemies is by saying help to the governing authorities that King Jesus has established. Okay? And for that reason, I am deeply grateful, deeply grateful for the work that members of our own congregation are doing in law enforcement, men like Dave Beckner and Jonathan Bloom. And, and you brothers are to be honored and thanked for the way you are representing the justice of God in our community. Not perfectly, but faithfully. We thank you for that. And we also say help to God by saying help to God's people, including our brothers and sisters in the church. So please hear this. If you have been the victim of sexual abuse or if you've committed sexual violence against someone else, please don't hide. Hear that. Don't hide. Share your story with a Christian friend or pastor you trust. The the shame that you feel, the the shame that that clings to you, even right now as I'm talking, like, like a filthy garment that you can never take off. That shame is something Jesus is eager to take away if you're willing to bring it into the light. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall exult in my God. Because why? What does Jesus do for the wounded and the wayward? He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You know what Jesus is in the business of doing? Replacing ashes with beauty. Dignity instead of despair honor instead of shame. That is what happens when we bring the entire weight of the sins committed against us and the sins committed by us to Jesus. That's the exchange. We we need a Savior who can deliver us from evil without succumbing to evil. And praise God, King's Way, Jesus Christ is that Savior. He's that Savior. He's able to deliver justice and mercy to the wounded and to the wayward. And that's good news. Why? Because truth be told, we all belong in both categories. And so we cry out to Jesus where we are wounded for mercy and justice. We cry out to Jesus where we are wayward for mercy and justice, thankful that Jesus' justice is merciful and his mercy is is just. He's not just a refuge for the oppressed. He's a refuge for the oppressor. Let's pray and ask for his help to trust him. King Jesus, you are a glorious, glorious redeemer. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that whether we are languishing under the pain of sexual abuse, wounded, that we can cast ourselves on you, your mercy and your justice. Father, we thank you that where we are languishing under the pain of being wayward, committing sexual abuse or oppressing other people, even in small ways. Lord Jesus, thank you that we too can cast ourselves on your mercy and on your justice. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would guard and protect our unity as a church. This would never be a family that divides into the tribe of the oppressed and the tribe of the oppressor, but that you would preserve and protect a glorious God-glorifying unity that comes from calling and empowering wayward and wounded to run to Jesus. Lord, help us do that right now. Wherever this word has touched our hearts, wherever we're living at the corner of our need and your provision, grant faith grant humility, grant healing, grant repentance. Do that as we sing. Amen.